You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week we're continuing our study of the book of 1 Peter. We're calling Road Trip. With this week's message, here's Senior Pastor Lance Bourgeois. A couple of weeks ago, Ellen and I were in Colorado with some friends, and we were up in Denver, uh, and we decided to drive down to Colorado Springs for the day, uh, which I love Colorado Springs. My friend had rented a Jeep, and so this was an opportunity for us to go enjoy uh, Colorado and enjoy a drive up Pikes Peak. Ellen and I had been to Pikes Peak before. We loved it. They had never been, uh, but up we went. If you've ever had the opportunity to go there, it is uh, a beautiful scene. It's a 14,000-foot mountain. But as I go up there, I'm met with some realities about me. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, Caleb Carmichael, when he was sharing, talked about the fact that his wife is a rule follower and that he is a rule bender. I tend to be a rule follower, but then I have this side to me as well. I am a cautious person. I like adventures, but I do not like feeling like I'm just hanging on by a thread. And so if you've ever driven to the top of a mountain like this, what you have is you start going up the mountain and it's, you know, it's 14,000 foot mountain. And I think the, uh, I think it's a seven mile uh, ride up the mountain or an eight mile ride, but it takes almost an hour. I mean, it takes forever to get to the top because you start going up this windy road and there's times where you're on the inside of the mountain. And I'd like to say I feel safe then, but I'm looking at the rocks and I'm thinking if they start coming, uh, it really doesn't matter that I'm on the inside. They're going to push me off. If I'm on the outside, then I'm worried about the car coming around the other side, if they're going to be where they're supposed to be or if they're going to hit me. Now, I got to tell you, when they have this tree line on mountains, which is where trees grow or where they stop growing, I should say, the tree line above the tree line, there's no more trees. And so as we start going up Pikes Peak and we're going back and forth, I'm met with this idea, as long as I'm below the tree line, I feel pretty good. I mean, we may roll, but I'm not going to roll that far because trees are going to catch us. Now, we get above the tree line, all bets are off. I am terrified. I'm going up there. Now, as I say that, I'm terrified, but I'm not so terrified that I won't do it because I'm thinking, I, I want to go see it. And so it's this weird blend of I'm exhilarated, like, oh, this is amazing. I mean, you start going, you're at some inclines, and you, you can't see anything but sky and clouds in front of you, right? And then I get like, oh my gosh, I can't see anything but clouds and sky in front of me. And you don't have rails all the way up. You have moments of rails, but it's exhilarating and it's terrifying all at the same time. And I recognize I can be careful, we can be careful about what we're doing, but I'm counting on the other person doing what they're supposed to be doing as well, right? And I don't, I don't know them, I just hope they're doing what they're supposed to be doing. And then I realize it's a little bit like marriage, right? Exhilarating and terrifying. It's a little bit like marriage. It's great, what a gift. I'm grateful that the Lord has provided this as an opportunity. And then I'm terrified because I'm thinking, you know what? There is nobody that knows how much I fail more than my wife. I feel exposed. I feel transparent. When I have a bad day, guess who feels it? Guess who experiences that at a deeper level? And so I recognize that as we come into this passage today, we're going to have 
some conversations that, uh, that are going to shape us in the way we think about this. And as I start into this, I want to say this. I think the Lord has something for every one of us in this passage, whether you're single or you're older, whether or not you're married, whether you're single, whether you're younger or you're older, whether you're single or you're married, if you have a friend who is married, I think the Lord has something for us today. And so when we jump into this, I want to teach you a word. You're probably familiar with one of these words. It's called orthodoxy, even though you might not know what the definition might be. But I want to introduce you to another word called orthopraxy, okay? Orthodoxy means this. Orthodoxy means it is right belief. Orthopraxy means right practice, okay? Is that you have a right belief that's vertical in nature, and then you have a right practice, which is horizontal in nature. What does that mean? Why am I saying that? Is because the calling of our Christian life is that we would grow in our knowledge of the Lord, and we would grow in the knowledge of his word. But this isn't just a way for us to win Bible trivia. This is a way for it to change and transform us. And so it's important that we not only think correctly, that we have right beliefs that are between us and the Lord, but that we have a right practice of those beliefs, which are horizontal in nature. What does it look like? Well, it, it looks like this, right? Is that that which is growing us in our relationship with the Lord is intended to transform the way that we act and the way we function, the way we, we behave. It changes us. We're not here to win sword drills and Bible trivia. Why do I say that? Because this is also true, is that orthodoxy is intended to drive orthopraxy. Let me say it in words that we're probably more familiar with. The right beliefs are intended to drive the right practice in the way that we live our lives. And we've been talking about that over and over in this book of 1 Peter where we've been. And so we're taught, using words like this, is we are sojourners, we're travelers, we're on a road trip through this place. This place isn't home. And so if those moments where you're like, this just doesn't feel right, this doesn't feel normal, why don't people think the way I think? Peter would say, well, you're getting a glimpse of the fact that you're traveling through here. This place isn't home. And yet so often we want to try to make it that way. And so Peter has these words for us that he's been working through. First off, on this road trip, what's it like? Well, first of all, he would say, you need to reject the indulgences of this world because everything in this world will tell you to drink deeper of this world. And if this world wasn't poison, maybe that would be okay. But the reality is the call to drink deeper, it will never, ever be satisfied. And then he turns around and says, but live your life on mission. Live your life with this mission as a way to manifest the fact that you think differently, that you believe differently. Live knowing that you're just traveling through here. Quit trying to make this place your home. This place is not home. It doesn't look like home. It doesn't feel like home. So he begins to move us through that. And so as he's talking us through that, he's been telling us, how do we live? What does it look like for us to live with these right practices? If we believe accurately about what Scripture says, God's in control, God has us, we don't need to fear. He will empower us. He will give us wisdom. He will give us discernment. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. If we believe that, how does it impact the way we live? How do we practice that? Well, he's been telling us, well, one is we can walk through this life and we can practice in certain things such as submission, where we would voluntarily yield ourselves to what we see. And so he's talked with us about how do we do that? He said, well, this is what it looks like with your government. This is what it looks like if you go to work, what it looks like. And today he's going to say, and if you are married, this is what it looks like in marriage. But in order for us to understand what we're doing, because 
1 Peter chapter 3 exists in context. It doesn't just get pulled out of nowhere. And people so often, if you know, in our world around us, will grab verses out of context and they throw them like hand grenades at us as if we don't know the scriptures. So let's talk about where we begin because 1 Peter 3 happens in context. Before we turn to 1 Peter 3, if you would, turn to Genesis chapter 1. So we got to go back to the beginning where we see the very first wedding, we see the creation of marriage. Mankind did not develop the idea. God created the idea, and God officiated the very first wedding. So let's begin with Genesis chapter 1, and we'll look down at verse 27. So we have the creation account of humanity. So if you look down, it says in Genesis 1:27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So let's begin with this idea that when creation happened and humans were created, male and female, both of us, male and female, were created in the image of God. There is inherent worth, there is inherent value in that. Through the rest of creation, through the birds, through the animals, through the water, through the land, God's creation, God's image is not stamped on any other aspect of creation. It is just humanity that has that. In that, is our worth and value. Now, it doesn't change the fact that we see distinctives. We would say there's some distinctives in the way that he's called men and women to function or husbands and wives to function related to the passage we're gonna look at today. But when we come to this passage, let's begin with the idea is that God has stamped men and women with his image. And because of that, there's inherent worth and value. So turn the page with me, if you would, over to Genesis chapter 2. And you'll pick this up starting in verse 15. God sent Adam out uh, to, um, God sent Adam out because he wants to talk with him about the rules of the garden. He says, there's this one tree. You can have everything, but this one tree in the middle of the garden, don't eat that fruit. It's not for you. Matter of fact, he says it more strongly. Don't eat it. It's going to kill you and eternally separate you from me. And then if you look at verse 18, the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. As all of a sudden what we see is Adam is alone. It's the only part of creation that was said to not be good. And it was Adam's aloneness. And so God all of a sudden says, we need to fix that. Now, as he says it, he doesn't say to anybody other than to his triune self. He says, we gotta fix that. Man needs a helper. Now, I said a minute ago about grenades, that our culture likes to take Bible verses and throw grenades, uh, use them as grenades against us. Well, let's talk about that because our culture uses this one a lot. It's not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And so it's like, well, Eve, what? She's just his maidservant. She's just gonna take care of him. I mean, she has worth and value. Genesis 1.27 has already clearly communicated that. But the people that use this as a grenade don't understand Genesis 1.27. But when we come to it, we think, helper, what does that mean? Well, let's look at some times that it's used because what we want to do is we want to let Scripture teach us Scripture when it can. So we come to a passage like Psalm 33. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. It's the same word. It's the same word. The same word in Genesis 2 that it's not good for Adam to be alone. He needs a helper. Here we are in Psalm 33. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help. It's this Hebrew word, azer. And the same word that was used for Adam is alone. It's not good. He needs somebody in his life 
to come alongside him and make him be who I want him to be. In the same way that God says, I step up for Israel and I come into Israel's life to help Israel be all that Israel should be. See, those are different focuses, but they're not different worth or value. They're just different. Psalm 70, but I am poor and needy. Hasten me, O God. You are my help and my deliverer. I can't do this alone, God. I need you to step into my life. Oh, Lord, do not delay. You may be familiar with Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my azer come? I can't make it without this. My azer comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. And all of a sudden, we see this terminology is that we've got this azer, this help. God looked at Adam and said, it wasn't good for Adam did not have that helper. In the same way I function in Israel's life, I want somebody to function in Adam's life on a daily routine basis. One Old Testament scholar says it this way, the most distinctive use of this word azer with this meaning is the way it's used in Genesis 2, 18 that we were just looking at. The Lord God declared that it was not fitting that man should be alone, but that he should be provided with this azer, with this helper. It doesn't necessarily imply divine assistance. It's used in a general way to denote a mutual assistance in the marriage relationship by one who corresponds to man. What does that mean? Well, look back down at our passage. Because in 18, he says, it's not good for Adam to be alone. He needs a helper. And if we knew what was going on, we'd be like, right on, bring the helper. But we don't. And so all of a sudden, it's like, then all of a sudden, the Lord said, now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens. You're like, wait a minute, go back to the helper. He needs a helper, solve the helper. Why all of a sudden do we have him out there like naming the animals, right? What good could come from that? Well, verse 20, the man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the heaven, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found an azer fit for him. It's all of a sudden, Adam's out there, and I picture him with his clipboard, and he's got all these animals walking by in pairs with helpers, and he recognizes he's all alone. You know, there goes aardvark and buffalo and caterpillar and dog and frog and elephant and whatever. They all go past, and he recognizes there is a symmetry in creation that he doesn't have. There's nobody fit for him, and so all of a sudden, he comes to that conclusion. Now think with me for a moment. If God just supplies the helper and he never has understood his need for help, will he appreciate the helper? See, all of a sudden what we see is God said, he needs a helper, he's alone. I know that, but I want him to appreciate the helper when he gets it. So let's send him on assignment. Go out into the world, go name the animals, and come to the conclusion yourself. And he did. I don't have anybody. I'm all alone in the world. Even the animals have helpers. And all of a sudden, as soon as he gets it, catch that verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of the ribs, and we had the creation of Eve. Was he excited? Oh, he was real excited. Before I read the passage, because I'm going to read it like this in a minute. When you have words, remember when you took languages and they talked about uh, masculine or feminine nouns and you could put endings on them. The Hebrew word for man is ish. You, take a, you make a noun uh, in Hebrew feminine by adding an ah ending to it. So the Hebrew word for man is ish. The Hebrew word for woman is ish, ah. So look at the passage, verse 23. He wakes up from his sleep. 
sleep. Eve is there. This at last is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She's Isha because she came from Ish. We go together. She corresponds to me. This is a good, good gift. And all of a sudden, we get to the end. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, which is funny because Adam didn't have a father or mother. And so he leaves, but we're told that. And so they're going to become one flesh. Some of you just got that, right? Verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. There was no sin. In this marriage, in Genesis 2, it is perfect fellowship. There's perfect fellowship with God, orthodoxy. There's perfect fellowship with your spouse, orthopraxy, because your right, your right beliefs have manifested themselves in the right practice of your marriage. There's no sin. There's no self-centeredness. There's no self-protection. There's no deceit. It is all in. If you want to get married, you want a Genesis 2 marriage. I have no idea, we have no idea how long we lasted in Genesis 2, 25. Because Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, it all changes. All bets are off. Here's where we go. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say? The reason I showed you this passage in 2.15, God gives Adam the instruction about the tree in the middle of the garden. Eve hasn't even been created yet. And so he kind of has her off to the side. Hey, Eve, what did God really say? And whatever Eve knows, it's only because Adam told her. And now, maybe Adam didn't tell her well. Maybe she wasn't paying attention. Maybe Adam was distracted. Maybe Adam was upset that day. I, I don't know. But the serpent manages to get Eve to, to question the goodness of God. And all of a sudden, if you look down, in words that are reminiscent of the New Testament, that the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life are the root of sin, here we go, chapter 3, verse 6. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, there was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise. Lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. All three of those are in the very first sin. She took and she ate, and if you're looking at your copy of Scripture, we recognize something else there. And she took and gave it to Adam who was with her. And Adam's with her the whole time. Adam actually heard God give the instruction. And he doesn't intervene. He doesn't interject. He doesn't, he doesn't step in, say, that's not true. This is what God said. Serpent, how dare you question the goodness of God? He sits there silently. And in the height of passivity, when she takes and eats, she hands it to him, and he just and takes a bite. And because, as we've talked about, you can choose your behaviors, you can't choose your consequences. You ready? God comes walking through the garden. He looks at Adam and says, what have you done? What have you done? He's like, she did it. I'm sure God said, hey, what happened to Ish and Isha? Remember, it wasn't good for you to be alone. What happened? She did it. I was doing just fine with my clipboard naming the animals. And Eve says, I can play this game too. Eve, what happened? Serpent. If you hadn't created that serpent, and so all of a sudden we have it. And here come the consequences. If you look down at verse 16, to the woman, to Eve, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. I'm sorry, women. Originally childbirth, I guess, wasn't going to be painful. But look at this next part. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. I created this order. 
He was going to lead. You were going to be the helper. You were going to function in his life the way I functioned in Israel's life. It was good. It was strong. It was intentional. It was purposeful. But what you learned in that garden, Eve, was when push comes to shove and things go sideways, Adam will throw you under the bus in a heartbeat to save his own tail. He's not safe. So what you're going to do, Eve, is you're going to want to control him. Because the word, the vow will be this, I will never trust him again. Because when chips are down, he's more about saving himself than saving me. And that's a painful lesson. Eve learned it. A lot of folks in this room have learned that. But that's not the way I designed it. That's not the way I designed it. Verse 17, Adam, here's what you're going to have. You ate of that tree. I told you, you shall not eat of it, quote. There's no room to not understand that verse. I was really clear, Adam. Therefore, in pain you shall eat all the days of your life, thorns and thistles the ground. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, and then you're going to be ground back into the dust just where you came from. Man, that sounds awesome. And so there we go. Marriage created in Genesis 2 when there's no sin. Genesis 3 says, this is what sin did to our marriages. And I think if we sat here and said, tell me something you've seen, Genesis 3 marriage in your own world, everybody could come up with it. But maybe God said, if we have the right orthodoxy, if we have the right beliefs that manifest themselves through an orthopraxy, the right practice, is it possible that we could experience and have a taste of a Genesis 2 marriage, even though we live in a Genesis 3 world. And I think that's exactly what Peter wants to tell us today. So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. See, this is a bonus Sunday. You get to study two passages of Scripture today. 1 Peter chapter 3. Now, you're going to see that in chapter 3, verse 1, we begin with likewise. In chapter 3, verse 7, we begin with likewise. And so I want you to turn back to 2 just for a second because we're picking up a flow of thought. This was a letter, right? And so when Peter writes this, he's expecting that we're still current. So if you look at chapter 2, verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor, supreme, or governor sent by him, uh, for this is, verse 15, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you shall put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom to cover up evil, but living as servants of God. Okay? How do we do that? Well, he's already talked us. He goes in and talks about what it looks like with our government as citizens. He goes on and talks about what it looks like when you go to work. Now he's looking at us and telling us, what does it look like when you go home if you're married? Chapter 3 Verse 1, let's begin with this idea. He begins with orthopraxy for the wife. Now, I'm going to tell you, as we look at it, women, if you're just keeping score, you get six verses here. Men, if you're keeping score, you get one. And guys, if right now you're cheering that you only have one verse, it only means you don't know what your verse says yet because it's coming. But he begins with wives. Chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, that they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When you see their, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, don't let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing that you wear. 
But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with that imperishable beauty of a quiet, a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. A lot there. A lot there. Let's begin with a few things here. That word submission, another hand grenade that culture likes to throw. Now, I will say this. It's a compound word. We've already seen this word in this passage. It was in chapter 2. We just read it for everybody. Submit yourself to the Lord. It really comes from this word. It's a compound word. The first one's a preposition. It says to place under. And then the other, the second half of that word talks about this military kind of uh, ranking, like an officer ranking. And so the word says to to place yourself under the ranking officer kind of idea. Now, I, I need to bring up a couple of things here. Number one is, when we see this as an imperative verb in the Scriptures, it's always middle voice. Why does that matter? Because I'm about to geek out a little bit here with English grammar, right? Active voice, you do the verb. Passive voice, you receive the verb. I hit you, I was hit by you, right? Active, passive. Middle voice says, I do it to myself, I hit myself. When we see the verb submit for wives, it's always middle voice. It is, wives, submit yourself. Why? Orthodoxy says, I trust God. He's the one who I hope for. He's my leader. Uh, the Lord is a leader. He's given me a husband because it goes back to the fact that in the garden, we're both made in his image. I have worth. I have value, but we have different roles. He's leading. I'm helper. I'm azer, term of tremendous strength. So I'm going to voluntarily yield myself to this structure that God has put into my home. Now, are there limits to it? There's absolutely limits to submission. Where? Well, anytime that somebody, and what this is there with the government too, is you do not submit to anybody that is calling you to lead you into something that's contrary to God's revealed word. If somebody calls you to do something that violates the scriptures, we don't do it. The second part is this, if you are in a marriage that is abusive in any way, shape, or form, you are not subjected to the abuse because that diminishes your worth and value as the image of God, which diminishes God and his image. And so we don't do that either, okay? Just to be really clear on that. Wives, be subject, voluntarily yield yourself under that leadership. To men, no, it doesn't say men. To husbands, it doesn't even say husbands. It says your own husband that God established this in the home. You're not the azer to all men. You're not the azer to all husbands. You're the azer to the husband that God has called you into relationship with. So all of a sudden, he says, okay, well, that's what's going on. Well, what if I'm married to a fool? What if I'm married to somebody that will not abide by the Scriptures? How do I live that way? Well, look at what he says. So that even if some of who? The husbands. So even if some husbands do not obey the Word, they may be won over without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. If your husband's being a fool and you think, well, I'm just, I'm out of luck. I got nothing. I got nothing. I've got no record. You're telling me to follow him even if he's a fool? And so often, I think the way that wives might approach this would be, you know what? I just need to tell him again. I need to paraphrase it. I need, he probably forgot. Maybe he didn't hear me. Let me use different words, just a reminder. 
I think it's so interesting that Peter says they can be won over, but it's not going to be by words. I'm going to tell you, I'm a husband. I know husbands. Sooner or later, we just quit listening. And if the idea is, let's say it again or get louder in it, that doesn't always work. And if you're saying, well, what if I'm married to a fool? Peter says, you can win them over. Do you see what it is? You keep being the woman I call you to be. You keep letting your orthodoxy be your orthopraxy because the moment you allow your practice of your faith to change because he's being a fool, then you become a fool too. God wants to say, hey, let me take care of him. He's going to say that in verse 7, foreshadowing, okay? God wants the wife to say, if your husband's being a fool, don't join him in his foolishness. You keep being my daughter and being who, I, who I've called you to be. You're orthodox. He says that. Are you, really, uh, are you really entrusted to him? No, you're entrusted to me. I'm taking care of you, and I choose to use him in your life to take care of you. But the moment he's a fool it doesn't mean I can't take care of you anymore. I will still take care of you. So you don't change. Let him be a fool by himself. And how hard is that going to be, right? Well, I think that's the next part. Don't let your adorning be external. I think we can say merely external. I mean, you can take care of yourself. But he says, you know what? Don't let your adorning be merely external, but adorn that hidden person of the heart. Because if your husband's being a fool and you're called to still love him and not react to his foolishness, but you're going to keep being the woman God calls you to be, you better be nurturing that soul to give you the spiritual vitality to do that. Because if you start just working on your hair and your clothes and the jewelry and the other stuff that he says, that's not going to get you through the dark night of that soul. That's going to be horrible. And so all of a sudden what we say is this, is this is a lofty call for wives. Good things the Lord is over her. Good thing that the Lord loves her. The good, good thing she's made in the image of God. Good thing that he will sustain her and he values her because even when the husband is a fool, he says, wives, I've got you. You're safe with me. And so all of a sudden we start reading this and it says, well, you know, it's this imperishable beauty of a quiet and gentle spirit. You know, I, I'm so blessed. We are so blessed as a church with gifted, skilled women. Let me tell you, there's a number of women that come to this and they're like, well, that ain't me. I'm not quiet and I'm not very gentle. Let me tell you, this isn't talking about your personality, women. This is talking about a heart before the Lord that says, I will walk with the Lord regardless of the foolishness of my husband and I will not allow my behaviors to be dictated by that fool, right? That's the quiet and gentle spirit. Lord, I trust you. It's a quiet and gentle spirit towards the Lord and all of a sudden, all of a sudden, this begins to make sense. This is how holy women have always done it because they hoped in who? They hoped in God. Their hope wasn't that their foolish husband would change his ways. Their hope was, he may be a fool. I'm going to keep living out my faith before his eyes. My hope is in him to change this or take care of me or fix this situation. That's the calling. And so just like Sarah obeyed Abraham. Now, Sarah, she's not without blemish, right? Neither was David. We talked about David being a man after God's own heart uh, when we finished that series. I mean, over and over, we talked about that. Well, Sarah's not perfect. Remember when God shows up and says, this time next year, you're going to have a baby. And she's like, I am old. And she laughed. And God says, why are you laughing? Right? And then we have the time where Abraham wants to deceive somebody and she gets sucked into that deception. So she's not perfect. 
But you know what? She's a woman with a heart after God, and she followed the Lord. And so there were other examples that he, Peter could have chosen, but he used Sarah. And so she, Sarah obeyed. She followed Abraham's lead. She called him Lord, not as the Savior, but as he's the ranking officer in this. And you women are her children if you continue to do good and don't fear anything that's frightening. Why? Because our orthopraxy is driven by our orthodoxy. God has you. Isn't that great? Wives feel incredible freedom. I want to ask you a couple of questions. This is not a time for any elbowing. Men, if you elbow right now, you're going to hate it in a verse from now, okay? Wives, how are you trying to win your husbands over to wisdom? You answer that. Is it through an abundance of words? Or are there behaviors where you're living out your faith? Because God says, stay the course with me. Don't, Don't be dragged into his foolishness. Let me deal with him. Wives, how are you doing in that? Wives, how are you nurturing your spiritual life? Because what's going to get you through that is not merely the external adornment, but the, the adornment of your soul before the Lord. How do you step into that? How do you nurture that so you can be more of the wife God's calling you to be? Enjoy being the azer. What a calling God has on your life. But to be it, you're going to have to be spiritually alive. It's going to have to be nurtured. You can't be living off the fumes of previous days, weeks, months, years, decades. Because here's the one that really matters. Wives, what steps could you take to grow in these areas? And if you're here and you're like, I'm not a wife, what do I have? Well, I would ask you this. Friends, how can you encourage the wives you know with these truths? If you know a wife, how can you do it? And if you're a person that says, I'm preparing for that, maybe one day, then start, start learning this now. If you're one that says, this doesn't look very current in our home, then this is an opportunity to think, how do we restore what was lost? And if we want to look at them and say, I've got friendships, I've got relationships, God has given me the role of encourager in the life of another person, how can we do that? Six verses, women. There's a lot there. How many are ready to move to verse 7? because this is where it gets for the guys. This one's about to get rough. It's a doozy. You ready? Verse 7. Likewise, same likewise from verse 1, all pointing back to chapter 2. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Live with, not under the same roof, it's more than that. Abide with, enjoy life with, partner life with. Join in, invest in them. Live with your wives in an understanding way. The word there literally means according to knowledge. And if we're real honest, we've got a whole bunch of husbands that are living with their wives not according to knowledge. And so the opportunity is, how do you know your wife? What does it look like to know her hopes, her fears, her dreams? What gives her peace? If she's feeling anxious, how do you speak words of peace into your wife's life? Can you imagine, my wife drinks Diet Coke. Can you imagine if after 27 years of marriage, I go to the grocery store and I come home and I bring her Dr. Pepper? And she's like, I don't drink Dr. Pepper. I'm like, yeah, it'll be fine. No, live with her according to knowledge. I got to tell you, years ago, we'd been married about 15 years, and I said, Ellen, what do you want to do on Mother's Day? She goes, I want to go bowling. I went, bowling? She goes, yeah, I love to bowl. I'm like, 15 years of marriage. 
We've never been bowling. I never knew you liked to bowl. We dated for three years, 18 years together. I had no idea she liked to bowl. I'm like, we're going bowling for Mother's Day. Now, have we gone back since that Mother's Day? No. I actually asked her. She said, it's not as great as I remember. So we don't go bowling anymore. But live with her in an understanding way. God's entrusted this, this gift to me to care for and to nurture. And my calling is to live with her in an understanding way. Why? Showing honor to her as a weaker vessel. Weaker how? Well, please don't tell me you're thinking intellectually. Please don't tell me you're thinking emotionally. Could it be physically? I mean, is it like, Lance, you probably could take her in arm wrestling? That's strange. I think the weaker vessel is weaker strategically. Because if she obeys the Scripture when it comes to 3-1 about being subject to voluntarily yield herself, then we walk into a conversation and she says, Lance, let me tell you how I think, how I feel. Let me speak into that. And then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow your lead. And then I think, I just won? She's weaker positionally. Because when we talk about submission, the wife has to speak. Remember, when Adam was created, it was said that it wasn't good for him to be alone. So we bring wives into our marriages, and we say submission means you don't talk, you don't think, you don't express yourself. Well, then what was the gift? How did it become good if she doesn't speak, if she doesn't add anything to the equation? Which is why when we think about she's got to speak into those things that we're told that they would be one without a word, that doesn't mean that you don't offer input and insight. No, you have to do that because otherwise the husbands are living functionally not good even though God provided the good. So we've got to have that come into the system so that they may be one without a word means, well, maybe you state it, but you don't need to repeat it or as often or as loud or whatever that word would be. Because husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, recognizing, granting them honor as the weaker vessel because she's put all of her eggs in your basket when she says, the Lord has asked me to do this. This isn't because husbands, you're so wise or you're so shrewd or you have the uncanny ability to lead well or don't lead well. I think the Lord would look and say, she's following you because I asked her to. And because she has the right belief, it's impacting her right practices. It has nothing to do with you. So you better live with her in an understanding way, showing her honor as a weaker vessel. She's placing herself under your leadership because I asked her to. And then look at this. Since they're heirs with you, the grace of life. It's God's way of saying, hey, I paid just as much to redeem her, my son on the cross, as I paid to redeem you. You don't have more worth and value than her. You want to elevate that? You're both made in my image. That's why we began at Genesis 127. You're both made in my image. You've got different roles. You've got different functions within this marriage. But it's not because you have more worth or value. It certainly isn't because you're wiser or stronger physically, emotionally, or spiritually. I'm calling you to lead. And by the way, you will spend eternity with this person. So recognize that the honor that you bestow upon her and manifest on, towards her on a daily basis is significant. It matters to me. She's my daughter. All of a sudden, well, what if I don't? There you go. So that your prayers may not be hindered. I think God says, husbands, you're not doing this. Expect there to be walls between you and me. And so for the wife that says, what if I'm married to a fool? I mean, what if I just go along? I keep being who you call me to be. And God says, 
hey, I've got this. And the wife might say, but I'd really like to do something. And God says, don't enter into his foolishness. Let me deal with him. And they can say, but what can he do? And I think the Lord's answer is, your prayer life will be hindered. Well, just prayers? Yeah, what does that mean? Husbands, let me say this. If you find yourself in a position where you feel like your prayers are hitting the ceiling, if you find that you cannot experience joy, if you find that there's a lack of fulfillment in your life, then maybe it's time to ask a few questions. Lord, how am I doing honoring my wife? How am I doing protecting her? How am I doing it understanding her? If she says, I want to follow your leadership, maybe I should understand her so that I know how to lead her. See, all of a sudden, it begins to make a lot of sense, doesn't it? And now, all of a sudden, we're back to a Genesis 2 marriage, even though we live in a Genesis 3 world, because he's finding purpose and intentionality in his life, not just going out to work a broken earth. She's finding meaning and purpose because she doesn't have to try to rule over her husband because he's unsafe, because now he's safe, because his orthodoxy is driving his orthopraxy. And all of a sudden, it's like, wow. Look at what's possible in this. Husbands, I've got a few questions for you. Husbands, how are you investing in your capacity to live with your wives in an understanding way? How are you investing in it? It's not osmosis. You're going to have to talk. You're going to have to engage. You're going to have to have conversations. You're going to have to say, hey, tell me about this. What are your hopes? What are your dreams? What are your fears? How do you do that? Got to ask those questions. Husbands, how are you demonstrating your wife's value and honor? I'd like to say, I think this is probably true, is that there's a correlation. The more consistently our husbands can live with their wives in an understanding way, and the more consistently they demonstrate the value and honor that their wife rightfully has, it's probably the leadership role and the Azer role do this and become much easier and much more enjoyable. Husbands, how are you doing that? And I'm going to add this. If you, can't, if you haven't been living with her in an understanding way, maybe you need to say, what would demonstrate the value and honor you rightfully have? Because if you understand her, you may be able to answer that question. If you don't understand her, then you don't have an answer to this question either. They're probably tied together. So husbands, here's your action step. What step could you take to grow in these areas? Maybe you can come up with 25. Let's just think in terms of one or two. How could you grow in that area? You can say, well, I'm not really a husband. Okay, friends, how can you encourage the husbands you know with these truths? How can you step into that and help somebody think through that? So what's our vision for moving forward? Here's our vision for moving forward. Orthodoxy, let's have the right beliefs. Let's have both the husband and the wife practicing the right practices because it will change everything. Will it feel exhilarating? Yes. Will it feel terrifying at moments? It will. But it's the best thing the Lord's got going for us when it comes to if God has called you to be married, to practice this way. Years ago, I came across this blog uh, that I want to share with you. Uh, a woman wrote it. I mean, it's, it's a wife about her husband. If I found the one that was a husband writing about his wife, I'd be sharing that. So I'd ask you not to make too big of a deal that I'm reading what a wife wrote. But she wrote this. It's called, When Your Love Story is Boring. Uh, and she puts at the top of it a quote 
from a teenager in a blog. And that quote was this, my love life will never be satisfactory until someone runs through an airport to stop me from getting on a flight, okay? Now, maybe that's your definition. Great. It was this teenager's definition. So, she writes the blog in response to this. Here we go. He drove us home. I'm abbreviating this. He drove us home over 18 hours, over two days, three kids, hundreds of miles, potty breaks, and princess pull-ups, but he's never run through an airport for me. There's a rumor, an urban myth, a fiction, a fantasy, a black and white screen cliche that love looks like this mad romantic dash through airports for a last chance at a flailing kiss. And then the credits roll, the lights come on, and we must go back out to our real lives where we forget that love really lives because it's all in the theater, right? So then she goes on. She describes a night where she was sick all night and he took care of her. And so she said, but he's, he's never run through an airport for me. He's carried us on his shoulders when we were too tired, we were too sad, or we were just too done. He lays down his life. He looks like, it looks like so many ordinary moments stitched together in the testimony of a good man who comes home to his family. He runs on snatched sleep, his kids tucked into the shoulders, under his shoulders on both sides of the bed. He's always patient and kind. He protects, he trusts, he always hopes, he always perseveres. That's 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, but he's never, he's never run through an airport for me. You see, this ordinary, unremarkable love walks slowly every day alongside me, one step, one day, one t-ball practice at a time, one permission slip to be signed, one lunchable, one school play, one art project, one Lego box, one more nightly, nighttime cup of water. It's this ordinary love that wakes up with bad breath, Increase marks across the cheek that is the daily bread that sustains across time zone and countries and cultures and the exhaustion of trying to figure out how to be a parent and a grown-up and somebody else's forever. And this is a love life, to live each small, sometimes unbearably tedious moment together, to trip over old jokes and misunderstandings, to catch our runaway tongue and our runaway tempers and gift them back into the hands of the person who God gifted to us. But he has never run through an airport for me. This is love. With the lights turned on, with our eyes wide open, this is a brave love, a scared love, a sacred, boring, holy, ordinary, over the sinks of dirty dishes, with one cupboard, with a broken hinge type of love. We don't need magnanimous uh, gestures to demonstrate love. Run through an airport if you have to. But the right practice of a right belief system will revolutionize a marriage. And it's about time that we allow it. You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.